News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been an incredibly challenging time for paramedics and for all first responders that were both of the um, public health emergencies that we're dealing with. And I know it takes a toll on us physically, but also mentally and emotionally as well. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry at yesterday's update. Yes, working in healthcare is emotionally draining, even at the best of times. And now frontline workers are faced with supporting patients and doing everything they can for them, but also without the help of family members who might have been able to visit and support those patients as well. So what is the toll of that? Well, that's a question that Laura Rees is asking. She's an assistant professor of organizational behavior at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University and joins us now. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. How do you examine something like this? Like, where where do you even start? (laughs) Well, you know what? It turns out we're actually engaging in emotional labor every day, all the time. Anytime uh, an angry customer or patient or someone who's upset walks in and we offer a smile and a kind word, uh, trying to manage a room full of unruly students by, you know, being calm and in control of the situation. You know, say you have a radio guest that's not very interesting and yet you feign excitement at having that radio guest on, for example. All of those are really great cases of emotional labor. So we're, we're doing them pretty much every day. Right. But what do we know? Like, how do you measure what kind of toll it is taking? We know a lot about this, actually, and it turns out the toll is pretty serious. Um, lots of emotional labor without an opportunity to, to recover has been associated with increased levels of stress and burnout, higher levels of work withdrawal and lower work engagement, lower job satisfaction, even increased rates of absenteeism and turnover. So where do, when you measure this, is it by talking to them and, and talking to these workers and asking, like, what has changed for them during this? Like, they must be feeling exceptionally tired these days. They are. They are. And we are actually, you do see a lot of physiological and kind of physical reactions. It it's really can be related back almost to the same effects of physical labor in some sense. It's exhausting for our emotions. It's exhausting for our minds. It's exhausting for our bodies. And so one one thing is just paying attention and actually starting to recognize that these effects are happening and and taking time to ask employees, as you mentioned, you know, how have the emotional requirements of your job changed? What are you doing now that may be more intense or more than you had to do before? Is this something that you think we're going to have to reckon with when things do start to get better? Oh, absolutely. I think we're definitely seeing some of these effects. I mean, some of the news clips that that we're on just before I came on, you know, are are highlighting how exhausted people are, how much burnout we're seeing. Um, There's a lot of job insecurity and and concerns like this. So again, it's it's just first recognizing it and then adding in structures and support that can really help people get through what in effect is almost like an emotional marathon. Yeah, what kind of... So how do we... Yeah, what kind of structure and support are you talking about? You know, an opportunity for people to recover. If we think about um, uh, physical labor and, and how we recover from that, maybe we take a break, we put our feet up, we get some more sleep, maybe we exercise. All of those things can also actually help emotional labor effects as well. Uh, an opportunity to talk with colleagues, to get uh, medical support uh, or mental health support if you need it. You know, all, a lot of those structures that used to be kind of small ways for us to take an emotional break, you know, talking to colleagues at the water cooler, 
um, or, you know, calling up a friend or meeting them for coffee or things, you know, some of those, many of those have changed or are no longer even possible. So we're missing even some of those micro opportunities to really kind of get that our emotional resources back in a sense. Right. Now, is this something that like even the people who are suffering have to think about, or is this something that employers should be stepping in to say, listen, we, we know we have to do something here. Well, I think it's both. I think employers um, need to, to pay more attention to this. It's, it's often really difficult for them to understand and to see what's happening. Uh, if you, again, going back to that idea of physical labor, you know, it's easy to see if I pick up a box and move it across the room, well, someone's moved that box that took some effort. It can be much harder for an employee to see the, the true cost and toll and demands on an emotional side that employees are having to engage in. They may not see all the customers that you're dealing with or all the patients or things like this. And then on the flip side, I think employees, we have to give them ways that they feel more empowered to share. This is how the emotional requirements of my job have changed. This is how I'm seeing this every day play out in these really kind of impactful ways. Yeah, the way you described it there, I mean, we could be talking about anything from somebody who works in a hospital on the front lines to somebody who works in retail, couldn't we? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's affecting all of us uh, in so many ways every day. I mean, an analogy I like to use is imagine that you're playing a card game that you know really, really well. And now imagine that the rules have changed and not only have the rules changed, but now I'm asking you to play it online or in some medium that you're not used to. And then, by the way, you actually only get to see half the cards that I play against you. And that's kind of what we're seeing in, in, in the world of emotional labor is, you know, the rules of social interaction and how we interact with patients or customers are changing. We're not able to even physically see some of that emotional information. We're wearing masks all the time, so I can't see your face. You can't see mine. Uh, and, and we're, you know, interacting in a lot of new ways online through Zoom or, or mechanisms like this that we're just really not so accustomed to. So what would you suggest that employers do to help mitigate this? Well, again, I think one thing immediately comes back to paying attention asking employees what's happening, what, you know, how have the emotional requirements changed, particularly in ways that I'm not aware of? What can I do to help? Employees can often have really great ideas themselves of ways that can help. And then employers to think about what, what does it take? Is, is it increased compensation, increased time off, um, you know, just saying thank you. You know, I see what you're doing. I recognize that. Sometimes even a simple thank you can actually help quite a lot. That is so true. Uh, Laura, thanks for talking to us about it today. No problem. Thanks so much for having me on. That is Laura Rees, an assistant professor of organizational behavior at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. And one of the things that she is studying, the emotional labor that we are, I think all of us who are working, all of us are undertaking a version of this and having to deal with it right now. Just being at work during a pandemic means that there are extra extra things that you are having to deal with. Yes, frontline healthcare workers absolutely in particular having to deal with an excess emotional labor situation, but so are people in retail on the front lines. Like people are just nastier. People are just not happy even out and about. I think there's a lot of people with a short fuse out there because things are so stressful. So there's a lot of people in different occupations who are having to deal with this uh, emotional labor issue too. And I'm sure you have a story about the way it's changed for you in your workplace. You can send me an email, send me at cknw.com and tell me all about it. This is Mornings with Simi.
All right, just to update you on a developing story this morning, looks like Health Canada has given the authorization for that Johnson & Johnson vaccine, adding a fourth vaccine of the approved arsenal here in Canada. So that's just happening. We'll let you know what is so different about this particular vaccine coming up in a few minutes when we check in with Jason Tetro on that. Right now, we're going to talk about the spread of COVID-19 in our schools. How much are our schools playing a role in that spread. I mean, we've seen some outbreaks, we've seen a lot of concerns, there's Facebook pages that keep track of this, but how much do we really know about this? Well, researchers are going to start serology testing with thousands of staff and support workers to measure how widespread COVID-19 antibodies really are in the school system. So joining us now to talk about why they're doing this study and what it's going to entail is Dr. David Goldfarb, investigator and medical microbiologist at BC Children's Hospital. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Now, this sounds like a pretty big project. What does this entail? Yeah, uh, well, this is a collaboration uh, between uh, investigators at uh, BC Children's Hospital, University of British Columbia, Vancouver Coastal Health, as well with partnerships at the Vancouver School District. And um, we've been planning this for for some time. It it seems like it's taken a long time, but all the the timelines have really advanced during the pandemic of doing research. Um, And so we were looking at trying to understand a very important aspect, obviously, of our society, which is schools. And there's been a lot of discussion around schools in the pandemic, and we're trying to shed more light on that context by doing two different aspects. One is that piece that you had talked about, looking at antibody levels in um, teachers and other staff in the Vancouver School District, and also um, asking them questions, asking about how it's impacted them um, in their lives in the pandemic. And then another aspect is actually looking at doing uh, facilitated uh, contact tracing in the school context in Vancouver using non-invasive viral testing, the saline um, uh, mouth uh, wash sample and to understand kids' uh, transmission a bit better in school. Right, Dr. Goldfarb, what has taken so long now to get us this point? Because there have been so many questions about this for so long. So there have been a lot of different ways that this has been looked at. Uh, This is continually looked at, you know, by our partners at at, at the um, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, we are looking at it in a specific way, and um, and it takes some time to get research funding and to get protocols in place to s- establish studies. But we're not the only ones looking at this question, but we thought we were going to be able to shed further light to, to advance our knowledge in this space. Do you think that we underestimate this? Like, we do we lack, it's amazing that we lack so much understanding, yet we still kind of pushed ahead and opened our schools. I wouldn't say that there was a, a lack of understanding. I think there, uh, with everything in the pandemic, things are new and you have to make decisions based on the knowledge you have at the time. And so far, um, you know, the information right now is that schools have been a, a safer environment. We are doing part of this as part of a quality assurance project to understand. And we do this in medicine all the time. We try to make sure that what we're doing is safe. And that's part of that is looking at this to ensure what's what's happening right now in schools is safe. And and so it's a normal part of what we would do in, in public health or in medicine in general. Right. So does this involve mainly like teachers, support staff? Does it involve the adults in the system? 
Yes. Yeah, so the the uh, the blood sampling where we're going to look to see if people have been exposed to the COVID nineteen virus is in in adult staff at uh, the the within the school system, both in in the learning environment and outside of the learning environments. Um, and then the um, study looking at uh, viral testing will be both uh, staff and students uh, who test positive, and then their contacts is who we'd be looking at. So how long will it be before we can get some results of this? Uh, so we are, um, you know, providing um, individuals who, who are um, participating in the study with their results in, in a fairly short time frame. In terms of the analysis that will come out of the study, it, it depends on a number of factors, and it's hard to say for certain when final results will be available, but we're certainly sharing overall results with the, the key partners in the project so they understand what's happening um, in more in real time. Do we do we still understand how COVID-19 kind of interacts in children, Dr. Goldfarber? Is there still work to be done there too? Well, I'd have to say, you know, there's always work to be done understanding an, a, a new virus like this. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, trying to learn. And, and as we've learned uh, over the course of the pandemic, this virus doesn't stay the same. We're, we're seeing variants. And that's one of the other reasons why we felt it was important to, to carry out this study now is with the rise of uh, variants of concern and questions around um, uh, how those may transmit in different environments and in, in, in uh, children, um, we do still need to, to study it. So it's probably not going to go away anytime soon needing to, to do these kinds of studies and understanding the virus. Yeah, I can imagine. This must be just like a boom time for researchers of all different kinds. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's definitely there's uh, there's if you're in in my space uh, understanding uh, viruses, it is certainly um, a busy time for sure. I can imagine. Well, I look forward to talking to you when there are results as well, Dr. Goldfarb. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. That is Dr. David Goldfarb, investigator and medical microbiologist at BC Children's Hospital. They are starting, one of the things they're starting is serology testing with thousands of the adult staff and support workers in the education system to try to measure how COVID-19 is or could be spreading in the school system. They want to figure out the COVID antibodies there and see what has been going on. Uh, This is kind of important information because we have lots of questions about this, but not as many answers as we do have questions. This is Mornings with Simi. As with all COVID-19 vaccines, Health Canada authorized the Janssen one after an independent and thorough scientific review for safety, efficacy, and quality. And assessing all the data, we concluded that there was strong evidence that showed that the benefits of this vaccine outweigh the potential risks. Okay, that is Canada's chief medical advisor, Supriya Sharma, speaking in Ottawa right now because Health Canada has just announced they are approving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for use in this country. Now, this is in addition to the Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca shots that are already in the process of being distributed. So what do we know about this particular shot so far? Our show producer, Victor Young, had a chance to ask infectious disease expert Jason Tetro about this vaccine. So this one is much like the AstraZeneca in that it is actually in a virus instead of a lipid shell, which is Pfizer and Moderna. And this particular virus is different from the AstraZeneca in the type of adenovirus that it happens to be. So the one from AstraZeneca is actually a chimpanzee 
adenovirus. The one that actually is being used in Johnson & Johnson is a human adenovirus known as adenovirus 26. So really, it's always about the delivery system. And now we have four different vaccines with four different delivery systems. But for the most part, the exact same uh, design for your immune system. Science is so amazing, right? That they could do this in four different ways. Also, the thing to remember about this particular shot is that it's different in the way that it is administered as well. In terms of the way that Johnson Johnson works, it is more traditional in the sense of how it is delivered, and it's very similar to some of the other vaccines we've had in the past. And the reason that is important is because it is a single dose. So therefore, you don't have to wait, whether it be a month or now four months, you don't have to worry about going for that second dose later on. You just get that single dose, you get that baseline immunity, and then you don't have to worry about serious disease when it comes to COVID. Right. Okay. Now, of course, this means that there are some other factors to consider, right, when it comes to who will be targeted for this with this vaccine, since it is easier to store and it does only require the one shot. Well, the way that I have suggested this before, and I think this sort of falls in line, is that for anyone who happens to be over the age of 65 and may have some kind of underlying condition if they're under 65, they should be getting the mRNA vaccine. They should be getting the two doses, what we call sterilizing immunity. For those of us who essentially have fairly good immune systems and are under the age of 65, that's where we can start using the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson. Now, where the Johnson & Johnson may come into play a little bit more efficiently is the idea that as a single dose, it means that you may be able to go and reach incredibly remote communities and provide them with that single dose and not have to worry about trying to logistically find a way of bringing it back. Now, this was much more important three days ago <laughs> before we extended the dosing interview, interval to four uh, months, but it's still very important now. Oh boy, yes, there's a lot to remember with this. So the AstraZeneca approval came, what, a week ago? And it alleviated a lot of concerns about vaccine supplies because all of a sudden we knew we were going to get hundreds of thousands of more of this. Those Pfizer delays and the Moderna delays, you know, a couple of weeks ago had everyone worried. But now this conversation is really about rolling everything out as quickly as possible. We are now at a point where we've gone to our blip we don't have to worry about manufacturing issues, whether it be with Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca being blocked at a border because we're getting it from the States. Um, and so as a result of that, we can start moving ahead the way we had planned on doing it at the end of January. I get it. It's been a month, maybe five weeks that we've been delayed in, in, in getting into that role or getting into that realm. But I'm hoping that in the meantime, we've been doing dry runs all over the country so that now that we can get these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of doses, we can just start putting them in arms. Let's do that, right? That sounds good. That's Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Make sure you check it out because he is an expert on this stuff. He's a microbiologist. So talking there about the fact that Health Canada just a few minutes ago has officially approved uh, the vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson for you single shot 
about the same efficacy as the AstraZeneca. So here's the deal. I know there's a lot of discussion about this, about how you'll hear that 66% efficacy number. Where the efficacy goes way up is the fact that it can it mainly prevents very serious cases of the illness uh, and it prevents hospitalizations. When you do that, you, it gets up to like 90%. So essentially, another tool, it's a good one. We can use all of them. And by the way, Health Canada pointing out that Canada is now the first major regulator, like Health Canada is, to approve four different vaccines. That hasn't happened uh, anywhere else, too. So one to watch, more details ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. So there's a motion from Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle this week calling on the City of Vancouver to implement that same UN declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples that the province has adopted. And this motion coming before the city is backed by an alliance of Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh leaders. We wanted to talk about it. Why is it so important and so significant to have this happen in Vancouver? So they join us this morning for more on that. We have with us Councillor Howard Grant from the Musqueam Band. We have Chief Leah George Wilson from the Tsleil-Waututh and Councillor Salem from the Squamish Nation. Thanks to all of you for being with us this morning. We really appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Councillor Gloratin, let me start with you this morning. What does this mean to you to hear that Vancouver Council is considering doing this? Uh, We find it very important in the sense that we now have on the ground uh, more than just intelligence, but uh, a working relationship that uh, hopefully will implement the uh, legislation in a more speedy fashion, as well as uh, putting some life to it that um, this relationship is, has already begun prior to, to DRIPA legislation for our communities here. <clears throat> and um, I think it's going to be an exciting venture forward from this, with respect to this new motion coming forward by the city. And Chief Leah George Wilson, what is the relationship like then with the Tsleil-Waututh and the city? It's uh, pretty good, actually, since they had the year of reconciliation, there's been a lot of discussion between the councils and there's been the city recognizing and affirming that it's on traditional territory of Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh people. I mean, those are really big strides. And Councillor Casalem, we've talked in the past before about the big project that is being undertaken for development here in Vancouver. How has that kind of informed the relationship as well? I think the city has been going through its own process to both be educated around the history and the context of First Nations, and then also to embrace a, a spirit of reconciliation, a spirit of, of developing a positive working relationship. So that's allowed for when the nations are coming forward on big community development projects. Um, you know, the three nations are involved in the redevelopment of the Jericho lands or the Heather Street lands uh, and many more. And so when our staff then work with the city of Vancouver staff, there is a real, I think, sense of respect and uh, opportunity to work together based off a relationship of mutual respect. Council Grant, what would you like to see happen out of this process? If you could, if they could improve something, what would you like to see happen? Well, Again, when you take a look at Article 11 of the legislation of, of, of uh, DRIPA, that uh, 
It includes the right to maintain, protect, and develop the past, present, and future manifestation of our culture and our archaeological and historical sites, our artifacts, and they they remain throughout Vancouver, you know, and, and we have to move beyond words in regards to any kind of legislation and relationship building. So uh, Vancouver City Council is now not only trying to do that, but also enacting something that puts some physical life to, to, towards that new relationship, or not a new one, but a one that should have begun a long time ago. Right. Chief Wilson, what would you say then? It would be high on your list of now, if we're going to do this, what do we need to do next? Well, I think they need to do, for one, on the service program and servicing side, they need to do a survey of what kind of programs and services they're delivering. And are those programs and services being delivered in a culturally appropriate manner? Are there Indigenous people in control or administering or in charge of those programs? Is there any connection to the three host First Nations? I think there are many opportunities for this work to continue. There's also the Indigenous interaction with the Vancouver Police Department. What studies have been done there? What needs to be done? Councillor Salem, what would you say? What needs to be improved now if, if they take the step? Um, so what we're seeing at, I think, the provincial level that's emerging and, and soon potentially at the federal level is UNDRIP allows for um, a lot of things to happen. It allows for uh, things like shared decision-making. It allows for a recognition of sort of the social well-being of Indigenous people and how to positively impact uh, the lives of Indigenous people um, and, and to to really address, I think, some of the, the the harms that have happened in the past by trying to undo them and, the, and healing of those harms. And I think um, we've built a relationship with the city of Vancouver. I think the city is very proud of its work on reconciliation and building positive relationships with First Nations. And we know that um, that's not always the case. It's really important to recognize that there are many places in British Columbia or even Canada where that relationship is not positive. And so I think it's it's really building on that success and saying that we're ready to take on this work and to really understand that UNDRIP is a declaration of human rights for Indigenous people and that the implementation of it is um, really about supporting the dignity of Indigenous people into the future. And that's, I think, really powerful and exciting, but not just for Indigenous people, because when Indigenous people succeed, uh, our whole country succeeds. All of our communities succeed. And that's really important to me. Yeah. Councillor Grant, then, is this a model, do you think, for other municipalities? Would you like to see the relationship that you have with Vancouver be similar with other Indigenous groups and their municipalities? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you can only hope and pray that uh, Vancouver and uh, the three host nations can uh, be a flagship to the rest of the country. And I believe, unfortunately, that uh, uh, the Walk for Reconciliation was a clear example that here in in, uh, Vancouver, you had approximately 100,000 people walk the walk. And uh, and throughout the rest of the country, you could put almost all of those together and it would barely equal what happened here in Vancouver. So 
other cities have a long way to go. And if I may say at this time, Vancouver was the one that uh, adopted the phraseology of uh, the unceded traditional territory of the three host First Nation. And those words meant something. They were real. And then sadly, that uh, that phrase now picked up throughout the country, and it doesn't hold the same meaning, in my humble opinion, as those are games that were just words, whereas action took place here in British Columbia. So we can only hope and pray that, uh, that uh, our flagship will, will uh, once again, BC leads the way, and Vancouver and the three host nations lead the way. Well, listen, thanks to all of you for being on today to talk to us about this. It certainly is an important step forward. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is Councillor Howard Grant from the Musqueam and Chief Leah George Wilson from the Tsleil-Waututh, Councillor Hassalem from the Squamish Nation, all of them. That's the three nations here in the city of Vancouver talking about the fact that a motion coming before Vancouver City Council this week calling on the city to implement the same UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that the province has adopted. But it is just... Good to hear, right? Positive things about that relationship between Indigenous groups and the city of Vancouver and BC leading the way. It's just nice to hear something positive in that direction too. Uh, We have more to come here on Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember when it was impossible to get any kind of disinfectant cleaning wipes or there was like a run on all of those products? Well, that kind of spurred manufacturers to try things a little differently, right? Because some surfaces, they're just more trouble to disinfect than others are. So a team of researchers are working with TransLink to look at the surfaces themselves. So rather than wiping them down all the time, how can they help the surfaces be disinfected on their own? Joining us to talk about the success that they have had so far in this is UBC clinical instructor and medical microbiologist at Vancouver General Hospital, Dr. Martha Charles. Uh, Dr. Charles, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What kind of surfaces are we talking about here? So in the context of the TransLink uh, study, what we've done is really trying to put some copper surfaces in highly touched areas. So stanchions and side of, um, you know, sitting areas. All right. So how does that work? How does copper disinfect itself? Okay. Well, it disinfects itself by killing the bacteria or other microorganisms at its surface. So really what we're looking for is keeping the same cleaning habits. So we want to make sure that people are continuing to keep those surfaces clean. But the copper has this added benefit of continuous kill. So in between cleaning, it has the ability of continuing to kill the bacteria and viruses that are at its surface. And the exact way how it works is a bit um, still a mystery, but what we know so far is it seems like it produces some toxic element for the bacteria and has this impact on the cell wall of the bacteria and kill the bacteria. So whatever is inside of the bacteria would just leak out. So that's how the hypothesis that we have right now that it kills bacteria. Well, that's pretty cool. So TransLink has been using more copper on surfaces. Is that right? So right now, for this phase one of the study that started back in November, we had a couple of cars. So I think there were two cars that had some copper and um, a couple of buses as well. 
So we were able with that study, uh, I mean, that study to collect enough evidence to support a second phase to this study. And we're really excited about that. So what will the second phase look at? So the second phase will look into getting more train cars and more buses with copper and also to try to have a longer study period. So this uh, phase one study that we had was only five weeks. So we're trying to have a more extended study period. And it will also focus on, you know, the most effective um, products that we had on that uh, phase one study. And we'll also look into what's the public engagement and see if the customer confidence changes with the utilization of copper. Um, So we're still in the midst of trying to finalize all of the details for that phase two. But uh, as soon as we got something, we'll make sure to let everyone know. Yes, please. I'd be curious about the customer confidence issue as well, right? Because I feel like some people might be skeptical and saying, what, you're telling me that this just disinfects itself? Oh, well, I mean, this is not new. Um, Health Canada has approved uh, copper as a self-disinfecting surface back in 2014. And as a matter of fact, we had used copper in the healthcare system. So uh, here at VGH, uh, so Vancouver General Hospital, we have three rooms in the BMT ward. So that's the bone marrow and transplantation unit where we've used copper in highly touched surfaces and were able to demonstrate that it's highly effective. Um, There was another bigger study that was done where people from um, York Hospital, Mount Sinai in Toronto, and also children here at at, uh, the, sorry, uh, Women and Children Hospital here in BC in Vancouver, uh, participated in uh, using copper on highly touched surfaces as well and had the similar results. So we know it works. Right. So is this just, why isn't everything copper then at this point? (laughs) Well, I mean, there's still, you know, things that we need to understand in terms of the durability of the product. And right now on the the market, there's a lot of different types of products that are available. So we're still trying to figure out what's the best, you know, alloy to use or concept to use. And that's what we want to contribute in. All right. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Dr. Charles, thank you for joining us. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for explaining that to us. It's Dr. Martha Charles, clinical instructor at UBC and a medical microbiologist at Vancouver General Hospital. Uh, they are expanding their study, essentially. Remember when TransLink did this copper pilot program because copper was self-disinfecting, so they wanted to put more copper surfaces like in buses and on SkyTrain cars, like just the surfaces that people would more commonly touch. And they found that this is actually pretty successful. So now they're taking the next step uh, to see what more they can do with this. And as Dr. Charles said, when they find out, they will let us know. This is Mornings with Simi. Monday, we will be hearing about the plans for mass vaccination clinics. More importantly, where the locations are going to be. You want to know, where do I go to get a shot? Well, we're going to get a very good idea about that on Monday. But think about all the work that goes into planning that. How do you do it? As of this morning, we know that four different vaccines are currently approved by Health Canada. The fourth one just came this morning, the Johnson & Johnson one. Different expiration dates, different shelf lives, different storage and transportation requirements. So we thought, let's talk about the scope of the operation to do something like this. Joining us is Mahesh Nagarajan, who's a Chair of Operations and Logistics at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. Mahesh, thank you for being back with us. Oh, thank you, Simi. Now, when you look at something like this, I remember you, we talked about this before, and how big of an undertaking is this, do you think, from, from your expertise? 
Yeah, I know we spoke about this before, and I think things got a bit more complicated now. Um, uh, it is a very, very big undertaking. And I think you just, in the introduction, talked about some mass vaccination clinics. You know, those clinics are going to take care of some of the urban centers that we are looking at. But we also have, you know, a rural population that we need to worry about that has not been vaccinated. So that would be done by using some kind of a mobile traveling pop-up kind of clinic. So we have to figure out a combination of these clinics. We have to figure out, you know, people who are going to be working in these clinics. We have to figure out how many shifts of people we need to be hiring for these clinics. And a lot of that is also going to change um, as and when we get these, you know, shipments of vaccines that seem to come in in a somewhat of an unpredictable fashion. So one of the things we spoke last time is, when we spoke last time, we just had Pfizer and Moderna and they were trickling in slowly. Now, as you know, we got this huge influx of AstraZeneca vaccine that has an expiry date which means we want to use them up pretty fast. And you cannot really, I mean, I guess like you can, but some people advise that you shouldn't use it at, on people over 65, which means we are now looking at a slightly different scheduling system. So it's very, very complex. Yes, it does sound very, very complex. So where do you, we're impatient to just get the shot, right, Mahesh? I think that's what health officials are up against. We're just like, just tell that's us where it. to go. But how do you plan for something like this? Where do you even start? So I think the first thing you start is you, and, and I know this is exactly what the different healthcare authorities are doing, is to find out who is going to get the vaccine at what time. Now, that again keeps changing as we get new vaccines in larger numbers, right? But let's say that there is a schedule, and we know we have a schedule, and that schedule keeps changing now because AstraZeneca is coming in. It's sort of figuring out the age brackets of people who are going to get vaccines at what week. Then they would get contacted. So there is an appointment booking system that's going to book them in, for the first shot and then subsequently for the second shot. Now, that also changed because the provincial health officer, Dr. Henry, has said that all of us are going to be able to get our first shot in July, which means the second shot is going to get delayed. But let's ignore that for a second, just even appointing the first shot. So, that, so we match the vaccine supply to the demand and we construct a model which says, okay, this week Simi is going to get, the next week maybe Mahesh, and so on and so forth and contact all of us. Now, these are best-played plans, Simi, but what happens is that the vaccine supply suddenly increases or decreases. And you know this is what was going on in January. Now, let's go through a scenario where it suddenly decreases. So what was supposed to come in week 10, let us say, doesn't come in week 10. Week 11 doesn't show up. And then you have in week 12, whatever we had in week 10 and 11, the vaccine suddenly shows up. Now, you want to maintain the promise that you're going to get people vaccinated by July. What do you have to do? is you have to ramp up in week 13 the number of vaccinations you're actually going to be doing, which means your mass vaccination center should have extra capacity or should be able to run another shift and so on. So that is quite complicated. So there's a lot of things moving around right yeah, now. Yeah, you made, like, I feel complicated just doing my day-to-day stuff. This sounds like <laughs> a lot of work there, but obviously people, that's what they've been working on behind the scenes, right? Well, we feel like we're not getting information. That's the kind of work that's been happening. Exactly. I mean, there are people in the healthcare authority who are working this out. You know, they've hired consultants who are doing this, right? There are just so many little things to do. I mean, you can just imagine negotiating and getting the spaces that we need. Then there is a separate set of people who are going to go out hiring all these people who need to work there. And then you're someone who's probably going and getting all the PPEs, the syringes, the gloves. There's a procurement that happens. And then there is the IT people who are working on an appointment booking system. Right. It is. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's huge. 
Now, let me ask you this. What does it take to be a good professor of logistics, Mahesh? Because like, sure, we all think we're good organizers, but what, how, how do you even tackle this? What makes you a good logistics person? I, I mean, a good logistics person breaks this big problem into smaller pieces, thinks through it very systematically without losing eye on any of the details, and uses math to do modeling. Now, math is a good friend to take care of these things. Well, that's really something. Okay, so we're getting better and better at doing this. Have you been studying what other jurisdictions have been doing to do their vaccinations as well? Yeah, I've been looking at what's been happening in the United States and in BC. I have, um, I mean, Israel, I, I know some details from Israel, but they are, it's, it's a very different model in Israel. It's a very high throughput urban model, and they had lots of vaccines early on, and they got, their, they got a lot of their people vaccinated. But the models that are going to be similar to us are some parts of the United States and, um, and BC. I really don't have a good sense of what is happening in other provinces, but see me, it has to be pretty identical. Yeah, I hope so, right? Because we want to make sure this is done in, in a very exactly. uniform way. Mahesh, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No, no problem. Thanks. Have a good day. Mahesh Nagarajan, who's the chair of operations and logistics at the Sutter School of Business at UBC, uh, talking about the very tricky planning that goes into mass vaccination clinics, the details of which, like the locations, we will be getting on Monday. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.